You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. at Bloomberg's World Headquarters in New York. And I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up, old-fashioned embezzlement. Positioned to fail, any regulation would have helped. They're just some of the CEO, John Ray III, and the words he had to say of FTX under Sam Bankman-Fried. We dig into the testimony and what's to come of it. And the FTX fallout is creating headaches at other exchanges, mainly Binance, which has seen nearly $4 billion in outflows in the past week. And Bloomberg has learned Apple's potential solution to anti-competitive concerns over its app store. But first, let's get back to that huge story of the day. After FTX's swift collapse sent shockwaves across crypto markets, of course, the House Financial Services Committee was out to get some answers from the senior FTX executives. A task that's been made, well, now more complicated by the fact that Willie's arrested. Sam Bankman-Fried himself in the Bahamas on Monday. Bloomberg's Chris Dolmetsch is with us on the latest. Just walk us through, Chris, what happens now from a legal perspective for Sam Bankman-Fried. Yeah, well, as we can see on the screen, things are breaking right now that he's uh, denied bail in the Bahamas and it's going to be in jail. I, I believe the report I saw said February 8th. So uh, that pushes things down the road for, for the immediate future uh, to then. And, uh, you know, he's apparently going to fight extradition, which could take uh, a while, could take months, could take years, some people say. Um, we've had people before who have fought extradition successfully or still in the Bahamas and have not. Um, so it's a real question as to how that will proceed before he even gets here to face the charges that are facing him, which are pretty substantial. Chris, I've sat alongside you covering financial crime in the courtroom, preparing in anticipation of being in the courtroom. It's never straightforward. The burden will have to fall to the prosecution, of course. What is it that they'll have to demonstrate and prove when it comes to the action Sam Bankman-Fried took or did not take? Well, they're going to have to show that he used, you know, he's charged with wire fraud, um, securities fraud, commodities fraud, and conspiracies to commit those as well. So they're going to have to show that he used 
basically that he lied to investors or lied to customers by misrepresenting the state of the company's finances or omitting material facts about the company's finances. And when we say material, we mean things that would matter to a reasonable investor when they when they invest. If that would matter to them in their decision to invest with him or to give them money. Um, and that would be the burden that they would have to show on each of those eight counts to get a jury to convict. Bloomberg's Chris Dolmish there on the legal and court speak. Thank you. Meanwhile, FTX's new chief executive and the man handling its restructuring, John Ray III, did take the stand on Capitol Hill, where he called the former FTX team as, quote, grossly inexperienced and unsophisticated. Take a listen. Not sophisticated at all. Uh, sophisticated, perhaps, in the way uh, they were able to sort of hide it from people, uh, uh, frankly, right in front of their eyes. But this isn't, this isn't uh, uh, you know, sophisticated whatsoever. This is just plain old embezzlement. Bloomberg, Shanali Basak on the ground in Washington, following it blow by blow. What did we learn? FTX CEO John Ray really talking about how this is like a paperless bankruptcy and that he doesn't trust a lot of the paper trail he sees. Meanwhile, on the lawmaker side, you have recognition by some, such as Congressman French, at French Hill, who says that the losses here could really dwarf what you saw even with Bernie Madoff. So one of the biggest bankruptcies here in American history. There's also this recognition of whether there could have been anything done to prevent something like this via regulation, via better rules of the law, land when it comes to what's happening in the United States when it comes to digital assets. But at at the end of the day, you did have John Ray also saying this could have happened anywhere. Remember, uh, you had charges, civil and criminal here, of uh, fraud and also uh, the, the SEC saying that the commingling of funds here were happening as he was misleading investors about certain facts about FTX and Alameda. Talk to us through, Shanali really what the answer is for perhaps people who've lost money here. Was there any sort of explanation for those who have been so emotionally but also financially involved in this as to where the buck will potentially flow for US or for international users? There's a few things here. You did have John Ray say that it's impossible to recoup everything. But you also had him say that in the United States it might be a little bit easier than other places given how the firm is structured. But I would also say that, remember, when you look at the SEC complaint, for example, they talk about how the funds were used and where the funds were used. Real estate purchases, political contributions, venture capital. Remember, we've already had the FTX executives say the venture capital in particular are assets and how they treat that in the bankruptcy when they try to make customers whole again will be interesting because they're going to have to track all these assets down at the end of the day and will they get full dollar for them at the end and are they even going to be able to find all the assets. Meanwhile, I just want to go to your expertise here, Shanali, in the contagion effect. You've been looking a lot at the other exchanges that Ed shone a light on some of the crypto-related names that have been sunk by this. But there has been a lot of reporting and, and focus on Binance, for example, on Twitter and on other areas of the media. Is that something that you think Washington is paying attention to at the moment? 
I think they're pretty tied up with FTX at the moment. So uh, that's a great question. If I asked anything about whether it's Binance or stablecoin industries or anything else, really, the, the focus really here is on FTX right now because people have lost so much money and there is a lot of anger. But to the point that you're making there, uh, Binance is a largely international exchange. Of course, there's also Binance US, but the issue you were talking about earlier in the show was net outflows to the tune of about $4 billion in a week. I thought Nansen's analysis of this was interesting, kind of not to fret, uh, this is a small percentage of total assets. But it does go to show the customer fears around holding money in an exchange, especially as the industry gets more concentrated, plus that issue with stablecoin withdrawals, to keep an eye on as the industry faces pressure what happens to the stablecoin industry. Whenever you have a congressional committee hearing like this, Shanali, yes, you get the testimony from those called as witnesses, but you also kind of get this broad range of opinion from those committee members that pose questions. Do we get any sense of what the committee members want to happen next? What happens next based on what was discussed in that room? Well, one thing actually, and no shocker here, but when there's frustration in the committee, often it's backward looking. And so there were a lot of questions about what had happened, how this had happened. But there was also a fair bit of frustration that he was arrested yesterday before he was able to testify here today uh, under oath to give Americans more clarity on what had happened here. I would say also, if you want that clarity, go to the indictment from the Southern District of New York, go to the SEC complaint and the CFTC complaint. There's a lot of detail in there, but there was certainly a lot of frustration here about not hearing from Sam Bankman-Fried himself under oath, which we know he had said he didn't have all the details because he didn't have all the data. Shanali Basak, just fantastic day of reporting in, of course, the White House or indeed in Washington more generally. We thank her so much. And let's just talk a little bit for a moment about what's been happening. The update that, of course, Sam Bankman-Fried has been denied bail by a judge in the Bahamas and ordered to return to jail, we understand, in the island country. Now, what's interesting here is the judge is also setting an extradition hearing for Bankman-Fried for February the 8th. Earlier in the arraignment on Tuesday, his lawyer said that he would fight plans, of course, to send him back to the United States to face charges. Meanwhile, coming up, the future of the cybersecurity industry. And as we head towards 2023, what that really looks like, we're going to get you the perfect insight, an exclusive conversation with Palo Alto Network's CEO, Nikesh Arora. That's next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? 
and where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. We've got to talk cyber right now because it's been an increasingly important focus for companies, for governments. And of course, this year we're going to talk about cybercrime as it persists. Palo Alto Network CEO Nikesh Arora joins us from its global cybersecurity conference in Las Vegas, bringing together more than 2,500 cybersecurity professionals to discuss just that, the increasing nature and all-encompassing global nature of cybercrime, Nikesh. But what about cyber spending? We want to understand right now, when you're getting up on your fireside chats, when you're thinking about innovation in the space as you have been with, of course, with Google Cloud, are people still willing to spend as much as they used to in this, this environment of economic downturn? Well, Caroline, first of all, thank you for having me uh, as we kick off our Ignite conference in Las Vegas. Look, I know there's a lot of conversation around the macro environment and what is going on with potential budgets and cyber spending and IT spending, to be honest, in the future. And whilst we are seeing some degree of caution from the customers out there, uh, I don't think the demand is going away because there's a lot of historical debt that needs to be paid because we built infrastructure over the last 30 years, which needs to be replaced uh, because everyone's relying on technology. And that requires a lot of our customers to upgrade their capabilities, to get more more and more sort of up to speed with the current techniques in the market. And as you know, the bad actors aren't waiting in an economic downturn. They're attacking with full gusto. They are. And therefore, what of the space, the competition in the space, the people, the customers, who do they turn to in this moment? Is it market share that's been growing for you? And, and how have you been winning that, if so? Well, Caroline, four and a half years ago, we were a single product company. In the last four and a half years, we have built a portfolio where we lead in 13 categories of cybersecurity. This is a feat which hasn't been done before by any cybersecurity company. So, you know, the silver lining in this macroeconomic environment is that customers are looking to reduce their total cost of ownership and increase their security posture, security outcome, as you'd like to call it. And that makes us a perfect partner for them because we have spent the time the last four or five years trying to put our platform together. And uh, that's helping us because you know people are coming to us in this consolidation uh, sort of driven market. Nikesh, it's been a busy week for Caroline and I, and we're only two days in. We called Monday Merger Monday because of just the relentless news flow on M&A. You're at Ignite 22. 2,500 of your friends and peers and industry colleagues. Historically, I look at your M&A track record. Is M&A an option for you guys right now? Well, Ed, you know, we've bought 17 companies so far since I've been here for four and a half years. So, yes, you know, That's we right. have a reasonable appetite for M&A, as you can probably tell. But we really focused on expanding our product capability and product portfolio. And we've done M&A slightly differently than traditionally in enterprise. We've actually looked for number one or number two in, our ca in a particular category. Uh, we made sure that the founders that come to work at Palo Alto have stayed with us. We made, made sure they run our business. In fact, you know, I was noticed, no, noting the statistics this morning, we have 14,000 employees. 80% of those people are new to Palo Alto in the last four years. So you know, we have made 
ensure that this transition that we've undergone through M&A and through organic development has been sort of balanced with increasing in our own capabilities. So we think we've paid off all the cybersecurity technical debt we've had to pay to build this into a large platform company for the future. I didn't, I didn't hear a no. I didn't hear a no on the M&A question, Sorry Caroline. Sorry to hear a yes. <laughs> well, I didn't hear a yes either. Fair enough. Uh, Caroline made a really good point earlier when we were talking before the show that when it comes to cyber security, cyber crime is not moderating, even if the spend of your customers is. What are the drivers behind corporates who think, right, I better now protect myself and invest in this area. What are the key events from this year that have pushed executives to get their checkbook out? Well, Ed, you know, last year in 2022, we had 2,500 confirmed ransomware victims, which means 2,500 companies had to deal with an environment where their technology did not help them. They got breached, their systems were shut down, they had business interruption, and they either had to negotiate their way out of a situation or had to pay ransomware to get out of it to get to a, you know, get back to business. Now. That is bound to leave a scar on you. You're going to sit down with your IT team and your security team and say, this should never happen again. So the market just in minted 2,500 new customers who are not paying attention to cybersecurity. And what's happening is you know, the whole pandemic, the whole work from home, the whole fact that you ha you know, online was the only way to get business done because your stores were closed has put a tremendous focus on making sure that your technology infrastructure is working 100% of the time. That requires it to be uninterruptible. It requires it to have business continuity. And there, cyber becomes your biggest risk if something happens to your tech infrastructure. Nikesh, you do it global cyber survey and what caught my eye was not only just how everyone has experienced it what was it 96% reported experience of cyber security incident in 2022 but what really interested me was the talent issue and you talk about a cyber skills shortage and that basically most respondents are saying they're having to turn to automated ways of tackling cyber security because of talent shortage how are you looking to tackle that talent shortage in this market so Caroline, look, you already gave the answer in what you said. I don't think we have a talent shortage. I think mm. we have a you know, sort of a perpetration of too many vendors, too much integration, which is done by our customers, who in some cases don't have all the skills needed because they're running a 2,000, 5,000, 10,000 people organization, and they should be busy doing their business, not worrying about protecting their infrastructure by stitching cybersecurity solutions. That job should be our job. That should be the industry's job. And that's kind of what we've been working on for the last four and a half years. Four and a half years ago, we went out and said, listen, this is a data problem, this is an AI problem. It was funny, I was remarking earlier that I played with GPT-3 and ChatGPT over the weekend, and it is giving you a little window into what AI is capable of, how natural language processing should be able to answer your question without requiring humans to get involved and looking at screens and trying to figure out what the problem is. So I think this is a data problem, I think this is an AI problem. We need more data in AI professionals, not really cybersecurity professionals who can understand 50 different vendors in the infrastructure and stitch it one at a time for each customer. So this is an automation problem. This is an AI problem. This can be solved, but our customers have to step up and embrace automation and AI because if they don't, we're going to have more ransomware victims next year than we had last year. We have a chat GBT user on our hands, Caro. <laughs> How familiar are we with that? Palo Alto Network CEO Nikesh Aurora, really good to catch up. Caroline, I'm grateful to have you on the show. Twitter's Trust and Safety Council. 
it's no more. A group of independent experts, it was created in 2016 to help tackle child sexual exploitation, hate speech, harassment, other problems on the platform. But it's now been disbanded. And a letter was sent to the team saying, as Twitter moves into a new phase, we are re-evaluating how best to bring external insights into our product and policy development work. Several members recently quit the group over concerns about the company's ability to police the platform for harmful content, Ed. Yeah, that's right, Cara. And Apple's making some changes of its own, preparing to allow alternative app stores on its iPhones and iPads as part of a sweeping overhaul to comply with strict European Union requirements coming in 2024. Bloomberg's Mark Gurman broke that story and joins us now. Mark, what have you learned in your reporting about the changes that Apple's working on internally? Thank you both for having me. Yeah, Ed, you explained it well. Basically, Apple has a major project in the works across its software and services organizations to really revamp the underpinnings of iOS and iPadOS and some of its other operating systems to meet these very stringent and very broad requirements coming into place in 2024 from the European Union. Now, as part of these requirements, they're really going to start making the iPhone a little bit more like Android, right? I'm sure some people aren't going to like, uh, you know, to hear that comparison, but that's the reality. You're going to see some side loading, which means installing apps from third-party app stores, from different websites, from other sources on the internet. You're going to see them begin to slightly open up the NFC processor on the phone, which is the chip that allows you to do mobile pay with Apple Pay, so tap-to-pay payments for the first time may be able to come to third-party apps uh, like your bank or Venmo or PayPal. Uh, you're also going to see a change to the browsing engine. So there's third-party web browsers available on the iPhone, whether that's Firefox or whether that's Chrome. But what most people don't know is that those applications still use the underlying mechanics, the underlying engine of Mm. Apple's Safari web browser. There's also some work being done to open up the Find My Network. Do you remember Tile, that Square-shaped competitor to the AirTag? They've complained for months about not being able to have the same iPhone-based pairing functionality as the AirTag. So Apple's going to try to bridge that gap as well. That's interesting, of course, because you bring up a competitor, basically, that Apple went and built something pretty similar to. All of this is about competition. We've only got 30 seconds left. But will this ultimately satisfy, do you think? Because you're saying it's like Android, but Google's also, they think, is too powerful. As long as Apple hits all the requirements that the European Union has outlined with the Digital Markets Act for 2024, I'm not really sure what else people or the government can complain about. Now, the downside for Apple, if they don't comply, we're talking 10 to 20 percent of annual global revenue is fines, which for Apple, as of last year, that's $80 billion. Quite the chunk of change. Mark Gurman, Money Talks always. We thank you so much. It's always great to have him on with a scoop. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Carolyn Hyde in New York with Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. And Ed, you are always a busy man across our screens, but also by writing scoop after scoop. Just tell us about the SpaceX fundraising one. Yeah, so Bloomberg's learned that Elon Musk's SpaceX wants to sell insider shares at a price that would raise the company's valuation to about $40 billion, according to sources. This makes SpaceX the most valuable private company in the U.S. Uh, It's up from a $127 billion valuation in July. That's according to PitchBook data. You know, this is a company that's dominating, right, the market for commercial space launch. They have Starlink, which is their satellite-based internet. 
you know, in the past, Musk has said that Starlink could be spun off in a listing right once cash flows more predictable. I'm really interested in your take on this story. You know, it's a tender offer. We don't know yet for certain if they'll do a primary as well. And I know, you know, you know this better than for every seller, there's a buyer and buyer, there's a seller. But what what gets me is that there's clearly an appetite from investors to get involved in SpaceX. And when it's led by, well, ostensibly one Elon Musk. I know that he, of course, has very powerful COOs and operational chiefs, female at that. But I'm interested in, Ed, why on the one side, you are talking earlier about Tesla shares that have been under pressure, worry about the distraction, but then in the privately held business, people aren't so worried. Yeah, it, I mean, it, it's a very hard one to answer. Gwyn Shotwell, as you alluded to, it, you know, runs day-to-day SpaceX, but Elon Musk is still involved. You know, in, in his pay testimony the other day, he said that that's still a key area of focus for him. So it's a question that overhangs both companies, but the private entity, SpaceX at least, seems more immune to this key man risk element that Tesla shares appear to be under. Yeah, for now. Well, still going to the moon, it would seem, in terms of the overall valuation of that business. And let's talk about valuations of businesses, private, and whether the exit strategies are still there. We want to talk about fundraising. We want to talk about deal sentiment. We've got great local focus for that here in New York. Cameron Ansari is with us, board partner at Greycroft. He's also the former head of M&A at Pinterest. So basically, Cameron, you can talk about everything that we want to talk about at the moment because it's a hot week for M&A and also clearly for valuations, but of certain businesses. Just talk to us. You're very focused on fintechs, in particular some consumer-focused businesses. I know that the likes of Billy are under your focus, but talk to us about what the landscape feels like right now for these companies. Well, it's been a slow market for uh, certainly for IPOs, for M&A, and for fundraising all the above, right? Uh, and it's been down significantly. But I think in these last few weeks of the year, certainly on the fundraising front, you know, we're seeing more activity. I'm seeing more companies trying to close deals before the end of the year. And then on the M&A front, you saw a very large deal announced uh, yesterday in the tech space where uh, Coupa Software is going to be bought by Toma Bravo mm-hmm. uh, off the public markets for about $8 billion. So, and that comes on the heels of Avalara, another software company that was bought by um, Vista Equity for about the same price, $8 billion, about a month or two ago. So I think you're going to see more and more of these deals where private equity buyers see great valuations and, and values really on the public market for some of these great companies that have um, uh, earnings, EBITDA, cash flow, and that you know the prices have just really been depressed in the last year. Let's weave, thread the needle for us a little bit of whether there's any themes then. You say if they've basically got earnings, basically if they're a profitable business. So what yeah. do most of the companies in your portfolio more generally have that right now or more changes needed from within before they can go out and fundraise? Well, I think in the venture space, obviously, when you're talking about early stage companies, the majority of them do not have a lot of uh, EBITDA or, or profit. They're, they're focused on growth. They may be growing four or 500% a year, but they're still burning cash. On the public markets, however, you have a number of great companies that went public in the last couple of years, uh, particularly in the SaaS space, um, software companies that are still public, but the valuations have come down significantly. Um, you still have you know, Zora, Smartsheet, DocuSign, Dropbox, Box, um, HubSpot. These are all t- terrific companies. And I'm, you know, I'm willing to bet that the folks at Vista and Toma Bravo and elsewhere, probably at Salesforce, probably at Adobe, they're sharpening their pencils and looking at these valuations and thinking, you know, when is the right time to make an offer for one of these businesses? Because those companies do have strong clients, good growth, good margins, and cash. Cameron, Monday was, I mean, it was merger Monday. It was madness. I don't know where you were or what you were doing, but (laughs) as those headlines kept coming, $70 billion worth of deals Sunday night through Monday evening, what was your reaction to that? The timing, the volume, the the velocity at which those M&A deals were announced? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it ties back to the things we talked about, which is you have a lot of strategics as well as private equity firms with massive cash stockpiles. You have attractive valuations in both the private and the public markets. And you have end of the year, right? So it's that time where people want to get things on their books and try to get deals announced uh, before folks leave for the holidays. So, uh, you know, we're seeing that, you know, even on the venture side where people are trying to really get deals done and fundraising completed before, uh, you know, we, we hit the Christmas and, and New Year's holidays. What happens next is the big question. You know, there are a number of private companies out there across subsectors. There are names that are associated with going public in the near term, long term. You know, I'm essentially asking you for your outlook and, and where you see this market going into 2023. Right. Well, look, in, in, in 2021, we had something like 992 IPOs, and they raised about $146 billion in proceeds. This year, we've had roughly half of that. Uh, I think is, is, is the ballpark metric. So it's been down significantly. And even the companies that felt IPO ready, uh, I think have pulled back and are waiting. Um, the two largest on the private side in the tech space, I think are SpaceX, which you guys just mentioned, uh, and then probably Stripe, the large payments company, which you know, many folks expect you know, is gonna go public in the next, you know, who knows, six, 12 months, maybe 18 months. But I think those are the two big kind of granddaddies that everyone's waiting for in, in the tech space to go public. And then there are a number of companies kind of behind that that are smaller. Um, but I think those are the ones that I really look to to be bellwethers for when, when the market's kind of back open. You've got so much experience in-house, but also externally and VC and early stage. I'm interested in your perspective at the moment in the lay of the land with regulation, because you are exposed to, say, buy now, pay later companies, Credit Key being one of them. The focus on fintech right now, very, very much in the crypto space, but more generally, do you think it's going to be a headwind or a tailwind to some of the businesses you're in? Well, I think one of the nice things about fintech, historically, leaving crypto aside, because crypto has famously been largely unregulated, but mm-hmm. most of the fintech businesses that we're involved with and I'm involved with, if it's a payments company, you have to have money transfer licenses. If you're a lending company, you have to be a regulated lender. If you're an insurer tech, you've got to be licensed. So all of these businesses that by and large in the fintech space, whether it's payments, insurance, lending, are regulated. Uh, and you have to go state by state, and these are complicated processes, and you have to get bank licenses. But because you have to do that, it makes it harder for someone to replicate your company. It also takes several years to get started, typically. You can spend from you know two to three years just getting from zero to your first loan or your first payment. But it adds a level, you know, obviously, of uh, sophistication of the business and oversight. So I think that, you know, in the fintech space, by and large, you do have a, a quite a bit of regulation already built in. And with your expertise, your M&A hat on as well, I mean, you're the perfect guest to really to, for the whole show because you were also was an early investor, I believe, in what's Palo Alto Networks, right? A you long, were, long time yeah, ago, yeah. like, well, we just had the CEO of I know, that yeah, business. I saw yeah, Nikesh, he's terrific. Yeah, and Nikesh is a big M&A guy. You know, he's done, what was it, seven deals, he said, since he started. I'm interested in your perspective of M&A and regulation because, look, you look at the deal with Activision <coughs> Blizzard and yeah. Microsoft. People don't like these sorts of deals. How much do you think companies with big, hefty pockets, are they going to be able to make purchases they want to do? Well, you've seen, by and large, and I see the Google Mandian deal, but, but Google and, and Facebook and, and the, the big uh, tech giants, Apple, which is famously not very acquisitive anyway, they've been very quiet on the M&A front. They really have not wanted to do much because I think most of the deals do get scrutinized. You know, Facebook bought Giphy and that deal is getting unwound now because of European uh, regulation. And uh, you see the Adobe Figma deal, which is one of the larger deals in tech, $20 billion. That's being scrutinized now uh, potentially. So the large tech buyers are hesitant, I think, to make big splashy deals happen. 
happen because they fear it is going to be subject to regulation. Now, the one exception is Amazon, which bought Whole Foods and MGM and, you know, the one medical and all these ancillary businesses that, but, you know, the key point is those are not e-commerce companies, mm-hmm. right? So they're staying clear of buying things in their core wheelhouse because I think they feel these other businesses will have less of a chance of getting scrutinized from a, a FEC perspective. Cameron, I just want to go back to your, your kind of career and your experience in deal making, former head of M&A at Pinterest, now at Grayscale. You mentioned about some of the deals that might hit barriers, some of the deals that might not get done, deals that have got done in the past. If you're sitting around the table right now with your bankers, with two CEOs that want to get a deal done, what do you imagine the frustrations are, or at least the, I guess, the anxiety that if you proceed with a with a uh, a deal, uh, then you know it might not happen anyway. Certainly, and I mean, I think you're seeing uh, on these types of deals now a lot more uh, safeguards being built in, um, escrows, and people asking for you know breakup fees in case a deal doesn't go through. Um, you know, I think one of the deals that was announced uh, did not have a no shop. So the, the company's still allowed to look for other buys, and they might have been Coupa. Um, so I think these are unusual provisions that you typically don't see, but I think in this market where there is uncertainty, where buyers might try to back out, I mean, obviously Elon Musk tried to back out of Twitter uh, before the deal closed uh, you know, pretty significantly. Um, and so I think that's the reality of the current market, and I think in the boardroom, uh, the, the venture investors and the others are making sure that these safeguards are put in to try to prevent um, these deals from falling apart, or to at least have backup options and insurance policies. All right, Cameron Ansari, a slip of the tongue there. I think I said that you worked at Grayscale, which is, of course, not true. You're a board partner at Graycroft and a former head of M&A at Pinterest, which I got right, and we're grateful to have you on. Thank you. Thank you. Now, coming up, how will the FTX implosion jumpstart crypto regulation? We have the perfect guest for the conversation, the Blockchain Association's Kristen Smith. But before we go to break, let's take a look at how Bitcoin has performed since Sam Bankman-Fried's arrest. It's up the most since FTX filed for bankruptcy. Some near-term performance, but around just shy of 18,000 US dollars per token. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. 
More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. The FTX groups collapse. The implosion of FTX. Appears to stem from absolute concentration of control in the hands of a small group of grossly inexperienced, non-sophisticated individuals. Appears to have all the hallmarks of Enron and Bertie Madoff uh, blended together named Sam Bankman-Fried. This is the antithesis of anything that is permitted in regulated markets. We failed to implement virtually any of the systems or controls that are necessary for a company entrusted with other people's money or assets. Justice seems uh, to be, you know, in process, which I think is welcomed by those in the in the crypto industry. As more and more information comes to light, I suspect there uh, is a good chance there'll be more people under the microscope, for sure. This isn't, uh, uh, you know, sophisticated whatsoever. This is just plain old embezzlement. Busy busy today in the U.S. District Attorney Damian Williams, of course, calling the FTX scandal one of the biggest financial frauds in American history. But from all the fallout of the FTX downfall, will regulators actually get a grip on crypto to make it fairer, more reliable, so this won't happen again? For more on the regulatory outlook, we turn to Kristen Smith, the executive director of the Blockchain Association, which assists in key policy solutions among regulators, lawmakers, public for the digital asset space in particular. You're, of course, dare I say, sort of talking, some would say, lobbying on behalf of your members, Eva Labs, BH Digital, Bitdeer, not FTX. Not FTX, thank goodness. Uh, we actually had tremendous uh, differences on strategy with FTX, and so they were never part of the Blockchain Association. And so uh, if there's a silver lining in all of this, it's that we don't have to be competing with them for strategy in Washington anymore. Okay, so talk about strategy. Talk about out of the ashes the roses that will grow that many will hope is is an easier playing field, a more clear playing field, a more transparent playing field. Is that likely? Because we asked our audience, we had a Twitter poll, we asked them whether they're confident or not as to whether crypto regulation will meet the mark at this moment. And as we can bring up, like 46% say don't hold your breath. People are on the fence. Yeah, well, listen, I think there was a really healthy discussion going on in Washington prior to the collapse of FDX on what we need to do to move forward with crypto regulation. I think there's two key areas, one dealing with fiat or dollar-backed stablecoins and what those regulatory parameters should look like. I also think we were starting to have a healthy conversation around what crypto exchange, you know, the spot markets where consumers buy and sell crypto, what the appropriate regulation for that should look like. Those are two very clear gaps. I think the challenge we have now with this FTX situation is the conversation has moved from a small group of policymakers who had really taken the time to understand this space to a much broader audience within Congress who wants to get involved and do something. So I think this is going to slow the legislative process down, but I don't think it's going to end the legislative process. I think there are tens of millions of American consumers who own crypto. Crypto networks are providing incredibly valuable services that are going to be the future of a new internet, a future of new financial infrastructure. This is innovation that we cannot undo and we want to be competitive with here in the U.S. and the regulation, uh, getting that regulation right is key to doing that. Kristen, it's good to see you. I hope you're well. The, the, the mission statement of the Blockchain Association is to advance the future of crypto in the United States. Has what's happened with FTX, what we've learned about Sam Bankman-Fried, 
impacted or, or jeopardized that mission? Well, listen, I think it's certainly a setback. I mean, we've had um, today, uh, we heard about the uh, incredible shortcomings at, at FTX International uh, and its related companies. Um, we've seen the charges and the indictments that have come down today. I mean, this is really serious stuff, but this is incredibly abnormal behavior compared to how most people in the crypto community operate. Uh, most people are here because they want to empower people, because they value transparency. Uh, this is a technology, uh, you know, that that can empower good for the world, and I think it's going to be incumbent upon us in the crypto industry to pick up the pieces that Sam has left with the mess that he has made. Um, and I think it will take some time, but I'm optimistic that we will be able to move beyond this and return to having positive discussions around policy. But more importantly, the builders in this space are continuing to create, and they are they're bringing forward ideas, and I think. Ultimately, it will become incredibly obvious to everyday people that crypto is a force for good and it's here to stay. As you mentioned, Kristen, Sam Bankman-Fried charged with eight criminal counts, including conspiracy and wire fraud. What was interesting to me is during the testimony of the current FTX CEO, you know, he kind of laid bare some of the shortcomings of the humans behind FTX and Alameda, lack of financial controls, lack of experience. My question to you is, what did we learn about some of the structural issues in this industry? What are the concrete things that need to be fixed with the crypto industry and also the underlying technologies that support it? Yeah, well, I think my takeaway from listening to the hearing today was that this is not a structural problem within the broader crypto industry. Uh, this was a structural problem with FTX. Uh, they didn't have internal controls. They weren't following local laws. They weren't meeting their own terms of service. They didn't have any record keeping. Um, I mean, this company was a mess. It was, it was in some ways barely a company. And I think that if you look at the way companies in the U.S. that are regulated by state money transmitter licenses who are registered with uh, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network as money services businesses. Uh, these companies are doing the right things and have taken the steps as required under law in order to protect consumers. Um, we've also seen companies take further steps and do things like proof of reserves where they're able to show that all, all customer assets um, are being held and segregated and accounted for. And so I think that this is something uh, that policymakers are going to be grappling with as we head into 2023. I do think that uh, they're going to have additional hearings with the start of the new Congress starting in January, and we're going to see a lot of legislative proposals in both the House and the Senate uh, that take and attempt to tackle different pieces of this. So I think there's a lot of work to do, um, a lot of discussion that's going on, yeah. but this is an important space and one that we need to make sure lawmakers get right. Blockchain Association Executive Director Kristen Smith, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Coming up, why the leaderboard of Bloomberg's billionaire index shifted. This is Bloomberg. Going viral today is the new lineup of the world's richest people on the Bloomberg Billionaires Index. Elon Musk, once worth as much as $340 billion, was dethroned as the world's richest person today. Bernard Arnault, the founder of LVMH, took the title instead for now. And Musk, of course, he's lost more than $100 billion just this year and is now worth, well, oh, 
only 167 billion. <laughs> His drop as the world's richest came as Tesla's market value fell below 500 billion for the first time since November 2020. And of course, this is amid concerns about the slowing demand for the electronic vehicles and Elon Musk's focus running Twitter. And Ed, we kind of come full loop here. We've talked about the increasing overall valuation of SpaceX. No distraction yeah. there. But the issue with Tesla, and of course, that is behind Elon Musk's wealth. Yeah, this is the first time Musk has dropped from the number one spot or since he's been number two, since September of last year. And there's this micro focus on his wealth. But we use that Tesla proxy as a proxy for kind of the confidence in him. But it is interesting that the valuation of SpaceX continues to go up because his fate and their fates are kind of all equally tied. At least that's what it says in the regulatory filings. <laughs> exactly. And in, I mean, it's still it's interesting that we've got basically a focus on luxury and a focus on on technology, they're still the names that yeah. dominate in terms of wealth and wealth building. We are still dominated by white males, largely at the top of the billionaires index, and we hope that that will change in some way of the focus on inclusion. But it is notable just how far the wealth has fallen, just all told. What was it? It's basically half from where it used to be for Elon Musk. Yeah, well, there's one thing you and I, Caro, stocks go up and stocks go down and they go back up again. And I wouldn't be surprised to see Elon Musk's wealth climb a little bit more. Exactly. For now, he's number two. That does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Do not forget Don't. to check out our podcast. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.